Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. Michael Kanick is the president and chief flag bearer, love that title, of Making Strategy Happen, a consulting firm that works with mid-market companies to turn ambition into strategy and strategy into reality. He's also a fellow member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches, which is how we've got to know each other, but is the author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. Michael, I'm looking forward to learning more about your book and sharing your story with the listeners. Welcome to People First. It is great to be here. Thank you, Maury. Well, before we dive in to the book and the work that you do around strategic planning, I actually want to go back to the beginning because People First is all about the leadership journey that we're all on. And I recognize that very few of us have a straight line between where we were and where we are or where we're going. So flashback to when you were a wee lad, your elementary school, the teacher had said, Michael, what do you want to be when you grow up? Hmm. What was your answer to the question when you were a wee lad? Well, funny enough, when I was a wee lad, I said, I want to be a strategy and execution consultant. <laughs> Ooh, liar, liar, okay, okay, I didn't say that. Okay. I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. So I always liked math and physics and science. So, And I actually went to university with the intent of being an engineer, took first-year sciences, and then in an elective course, took a kinesiology course, which essentially is applied science to human movement. And okay. being I had been involved in sports and physical activity, I love sports, kinesiology was, wow, this is where I belong. Kinesiology then had to do with <clears throat> excuse me, human performance. Uh, I got into the psychology of human performance. What are the factors that affect how we learn and perform, you know, in sports and other contexts? Well, then I get into business and lo and behold, everything in business has to do with performance. You know, what are the factors that influence performance? So you're exactly right. It has not been a straight line. Uh, however, there has been a thread. And the thread, you know, from, as I said, originally wanting to understand how things work with science and then uh, science applied to human movement and sports and human performance and business. And that's got me to where I am today. I love that. I love all of those different pivot points. And the human performance and the psychology piece then now a penny drops for me. Because when I opened the book, uh, let's be clear, it's strategic planning or as you prefer, strategic execution. Let's stop strategic planning. Yeah. But the opening words just grab my attention because you use some powerful phrases about how in this book you want to make us feel uncomfortable and recognize what we haven't done and what we need to do. But what really grabbed my attention was you want to provoke smoldering discontent for the way things are and a fierce resolve to change them. Exactly. So tell me more about the inspiration, both for the book, but also those opening words, which literally grabbed me and shook me awake. Right. So smoldering discontent, why is that important? Well, and this goes back to my studies of psychology in university and the psychology of human performance. One of the things I studied was, you know, what is it that leads people to change, the psychology of change and how we value things. And as it turns out, pain is a more reliable predictor of change than pleasure. 
So we'll, we'll put more weight on avoiding pain or loss than we will on pleasure or gain. And this was rooted in a field called behavioral economics. And I had the good fortune to study with a guy who went on to win the Nobel, uh, Daniel Kahneman, for his work on behavioral economics, who showed clearly these asymmetries in how we, how we value gain and pain or, or gain and loss. Effectively, you know, if I were to say to you, Morag, we're going to reduce your salary by 20%, that's going to have a much more intense emotional reaction than if I say, we're going to increase your salary by 20%. Mm -hmm. So the negative has more weight. All to say that often with organizational change, we talk about, well, here's what we want to achieve and the vision and the goal. That's very important. But at the same time, what we have to identify is what's the pain? What's the what's causing us the discomfort that's going to help propel us to take action? That's the smoldering discontent. I love it. I love it. Thank you. So. As we go through the book, I mean, the, the research has shown that strategic planning and strategic execution kind of sucks. So it doesn't <laughs> for success. So what's different about how and what you're sharing in your book, Ruthless Consistency? Yeah, number one, it's a process, not an event. We tend to treat strategic planning as an event. Let's go away and do our planning, and then we've created a plan, ta-da, we have the plan. Well, the reality is where it most often fails is in the execution phase. And it's because once the plan is developed, we get back to the day, day work, and the plan either gets sidetracked by the busyness of the day-to-day, -day, or it sits on a shelf and collects dust. So the number one thing I want to instill in leaders is we have to treat strategy as a process, not an event. This is strategic management, not strategic planning. Mm -hmm. It's how you manage your business. You, we want you to manage your business strategically. The goal isn't simply to develop a plan. So the big difference is really understanding that strategy is a process. Number two, when it comes to the execution, there's some key principles, things I've discovered in, in studying why strategic change initiatives fail. And number one, what's more important than anything you do is everything you do. Oh, say more about that. Well, too often as leaders, we think when we have strategic change, well, let's get people through training. Okay, we get everyone through training, but then it fails. Or we say, well, we have to communicate to people. Well, when I've looked you know, at why these things succeed or fail, I found that companies, many companies had done a good job of training, but failed. Others had done a good job at communications, but failed at their implementation. Others had put in place incentives, but failed. Others had put in place resources, but failed. Every management practice I looked at, there was nothing I found that correlated with success. And I thought, Morg, isn't there anything a company can do that, you know, that predicts success? And then the light bulb went on. And I realized, no, there's not anything you can do. It's everything. everything. All the arrows have to be pointed in the right direction. Everything has to point people towards your desired endpoint. Everything has to be aligned because any single factor misaligned could undermine everything. So quick example, I give you a clear sense of purpose, but if I don't give you the resources to execute that purpose, how are you going to feel? Uh, a little set up to fail. Right, set up to fail. Exactly right. If I give you skills, but I don't give you the authority to apply them, you're going to feel like I don't trust you. Mm -hmm. If I trumpet excellence, but then tolerate poor performance, I'm sending a mixed message. I demotivate people. 
So it's the mixed messages that kill us as leaders. It's when we say one thing, but do another. So the point of ruthless consistency is that once we're clear on what we need to achieve, we need to make sure all of our decisions, all of our actions are relentlessly aligned with our intentions, because that's the foundation of success. I love those. So some great examples there of leadership inconsistency or process and systematic inconsistency where words and figures differ. But also ruthless consistency, though, isn't cutthroat ruthlessness. As I read through the book and I was thinking, well, why ruthless consistency? You actually then go on to talk about how people feel in the environment that you create to get people on board and excited about the future opportunities and the change. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, it's a good question because by ruthless, what I don't mean is cruel or cold-hearted or you know people are just mere objects of production. What I mean by ruthless consistency is this unwavering commitment. It's a ruthless consistency of purpose to make sure that everything you do, everything you say is aligned with your intentions. Now, that means we have to be able to ignite the human spirit, not squash it. Mm -hmm. So in creating the right environment, I focus a lot on the psychological incentives and removing the psychological disincentives to change. Because it's not just a matter of training and communications, but it's do they feel they have the skills? Do they understand the sense of purpose? Do they see how what they do connects to that purpose? It's really about their perspective. That's what we're trying to connect with. And they have to feel valued. It's very important that people feel respected, trusted, cared about as individuals, because then we get engagement and then we get performance. Ooh, there's that magical word engagement. So can you give me some examples and stories of how you create an environment and a people experience that results in engagement? So probably the number one thing that, that well-intentioned managers do poorly is they communicate at people, not communicate with people. Mm. Too often we think it's about, you know, pushing information at people, keeping them informed. So, you know, you'll get in front of a group of employees and you'll say your piece. And then a manager might ask, does anyone have any questions? Crickets. Well, what, is, what do they get when they ask, does anyone have any questions? What do they get? That awkward silence. <laughs> exactly. You don't know what to say. And of course, if we have a question that sounds dumb, then there would double whammy there. So you know what? I'll just keep quiet. Exactly. That's right. And that's exactly what happens. And that's because you're communicating at people. A better way is to communicate with people. So let's say you've got a group of you know 10 people and you're communicating. At the end of it, what you say is, take a minute, turn to the person next to you. What's your number one reaction to what I've just said? Or what's your number one question? Or what's one thing you liked about what I said? Or what's one concern you have? Get people talking with each other, groups of two or three, right? Just for a couple of minutes, and they will talk. And then randomly pick on people to get feedback. Oh, Maury, what was the highlight from your conversation? Oh, John, what was the highlight from what you said? And when you do that, now you're getting people engaged. Have them process what you've said, get their feedback, get them engaged. Now you're communicating with people, not just at people. I love that. And it's now that the survey said versus, Michael, I think that sucks. And potentially career risk and career suicide if I start asking those questions. But it now makes me part of the conversation, but also part of the, the team that's going to execute against it. So right. 
and the moment of truth comes is when somebody says something that might be a little bit controversial or some concern they have. As a leader, this is the moment of truth. And what you want to do is thank the person. Thank them for having the courage to bring up something that maybe was a little contentious. Mm-hmm. Thank them for asking that challenging question. By thanking them, you're reinforcing them and letting people know it's okay to ask well-intentioned questions or to elevate well-intentioned concerns. So that moment of truth, you need to elevate it and then to answer that concern or answer that question. But make sure you don't squash, you know, squash people when they take a stand, when they take that step, show some courage and maybe bring up something that's a little bit uncomfortable. So often when I'm coaching uh, senior leaders, the one of the fears is what happens if I don't know the answer or what happens if that controversial question asks for the moon and we don't have the budget for the moon? So you know what? I'm not going to ask for questions. So what advice and guidance do you have for leaders who may be worried about the the question they're going to get and their ability to deliver on the answer that's needed? Right. The 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 answer, short answer is don't feel like you have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. You're not perfect. You don't have the answer to everything. You don't need to have the answer to everything. You don't have unlimited resources. You actually gain a lot of credibility when an employee asks an insightful question and you say, huh, that's a great question. I don't know. You know, let me find out. Or this is something we need to consider as a leadership team. That is an excellent question. Thank you. You actually gain credibility when you're willing to acknowledge and being authentic and say, I don't know, or we hadn't considered that. So I think, you know, take the pressure off yourself. Don't feel you have to be perfect. I'm the leader. I have to know everything. No, you don't. And people find you more accessible when you convey that you don't know everything. Well, usually the hidden underside to the I'm the leader and therefore I'm expected to know everything is you then create a culture where, and you know what, you can also do everything too. And then we get that frustration of, well, you know, isn't it obvious? Why isn't everybody as excited as me? Why aren't they delivering the change that I've asked for? And it goes back to those two principles that you already talked about. Either we're not communicating consistency, we're communicating mixed messages, and we haven't focused on gauging the heart, the, the why and the passion and the people experience to help affect that strategic execution. Exactly right. You know, and when leaders convey that they have all the answers, then people naturally think, well, I guess I don't need to think because you're going to tell me or you'll figure mm-hmm. it out or you know. Yeah, get learned helplessness. So the yeah. third principle actually comes back to the leaders again, but it challenges them to think about their own level of commitment. So that was a a little plot twist I wasn't expecting. So (laughs) what's your experience of leader commitment and the impact that that has? Well, number one, every leader says that he or she is committed, right? I'm committed. Absolutely, I'm committed. Well, one of the things I learned coaching, and I used to uh, coach football at the, the university level. One of the things I learned was that there is a big difference between the will to win and the will to do what it takes to win. And you'd better understand that difference. You know, all of us have the will to win. We want to win. We want to feel what it feels like to win. Do we have the will to do what it takes? Which is often the things we don't want to do. We don't like to do. Put pressure on us. Make us uncomfortable. Those are what determine our will to do what it takes to win. And when you look at people who are successful more in any field, whether that's, that's sports, it's coaching, it's entertainment, it's business, whatever... 
you'll find that the successful people, they're the ones who are willing to do what they don't like to do and don't want to do. And they're able to deal with the pressure and the discomfort. Why? Because that's what's needed to get them to where they need to get to. And, you know, there are a lot of examples of this. And, you know, the one I, I, I write about in the book uh, is Lindsay Vaughn, the skier, who won more World Cup ski races than any woman in history by far. And you think, wow, what a great racer she, she was. Well, the reality is she was an absolute maniacal worker when it came to training and practice and analysis. She put in far more effort, you know, than her, comp her competitors and that demonstrates the will to do what it takes to win. So I think leaders need to have those benchmarks to see what true commitment looks like. You know, what true commitment looks like in terms of effort and pain and adversity and difficulty, uh, because we're not as committed as we think we are or need to be. And that's what I want to shine a spotlight on. We only have to think about the New Year's resolutions or the I'm going to start working out regularly and how quickly those peter out. And yes. those are all selfish for me goals. So if we then add on the organizational goals, is it any wonder that that enthusiasm peters out? And I know you spend some time talking about you're not a manager, you're a coach. And as a leader, it's not just coaching your team, but it's looking at the peer coaching and coaching yourself on those days where the change and the execution is hard. Yes, yes, yeah. You have to be reflective. You have to be reflective enough and detached enough to determine, you know, what are my patterns that are leading to success or what patterns am I in that aren't leading to success? And can we shift our patterns? Can we learn, grow and shift our patterns? Uh, we get into many subconscious patterns. And I think as leaders, we have to we have to create winning patterns that help us achieve what we need to achieve. It's interesting because you talk about patterns and from that come the biases and you spend one part of the book exploring getting the right team and hiring for not just what you do, but also what you're likely to overlook. So tell me a little bit more about the insights that came from that part of your research. Yes. the When we're hiring people, what do we typically look for? We look for skills and experience. Mm -hmm. Can they do the job? Have they done the uh, job? Unfortunately, people can have skills and experience, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, where, geez, the employee you know, looks good on paper, we hire them, and they don't perform as we expect. Well, it turns out there's a third category that we often overlook, and that's their traits. Do they have the traits that are needed to be successful, which might be things such as taking initiative, mm -hmm. overcoming adversity, functioning well as a team? Right. How do people you know, work in those situations? Do they demonstrate those traits? Because skills tell you what they can do. Experience tells you what they have done. But traits tell you, will they do it? What will they do? So it's important to look for traits. So I, there's a lot of a number of assessments on the market that will tell you about people's traits. Um, you know, the they tell you about, you know, how they react in different situations. Are they likely to be ones who, you know, again, take initiative? Do they take responsibility when things go wrong? What kind of work ethic do they have? So we want to get at their traits. And if we get the right traits, along with sufficient skills and experience, we're more likely to get the people who can do the job. The, one of the traits that's key, of course, in building the right team is teamwork. Mm -hmm. Because often we have this assumption, well, we just have to get the best talent. 
Well, another lesson I took from coaching is that the best players don't necessarily make the best team, but the best team usually wins. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I want to understand is how does this person fit with the group as a whole? Not just how are they going to perform or how capable are they? How will they fit with the group as a whole? So that's one of the things we need to consider as well in, in looking at their traits and assessing them. How do they fit in creating that right team? See, I love this because it's it's pulling together different strands. It's not just the logic of change because often we can look cold light of day at the statistics and go, yeah, okay, I get it. On paper, this is a good idea. But what you're also weaving through is that emotional, how does it feel, and the human side. And that, in my experience, and certainly my early career in banking, was what was overlooked. It was all about the numbers. It was all about the logic. But ultimately, if you don't get the human element right, you're never going to deliver the numbers or the results because it's, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. You're either uh, you've got humans making it or humans that you're trying to attract to consume whatever it is that you're providing. Exactly. And, and I will admit to you, Morag, it took me quite a while as a manager to learn that you hire employees, but human beings show up to work. Mm -hmm. with their hopes, their fears, their securities, their insecurities, their ambitions, what's going on at home. And you have to be at least somewhat attuned to those things because you could be demotivating people. And at, you know, at least you're not engaging them to the extent you could, because when people know that you care about them, you respect them, as you trust them as individuals, they're much more likely to be engaged. You know, so the, the rule really is if you connect with the heart, the head will follow. And that's where you want to start. So I'm curious then, because 2020 is the ultimate leadership crucible, change crucible. And when we were in the office together, chances are our limbic system, et cetera, would give me a little spidey sense of, oh, Michael seems a little off today. I ought to check in. How are you doing? But of course, now everything's in two dimensional. We're working in a distributed environment. What are you seeing and hearing from your clients about how it's impacting the philosophy and approach from your book or just how we need to show up as humans in the workplace? Right. So we definitely need to adjust given what we're going through right now. And the two big things are we need to check in more frequently now. We need to check in. That doesn't mean for longer periods of time, but more frequent check-ins with people mm -hmm. and, and at a personal level. You know, so right now, imagine the single mom who's, you know, got got her job. She's working, you know, got her home and has also got the kids. OK, are they going to be in school? Are they staying in school? Is there going to be a COVID outbreak? Do we have to bring them home. There's a lot of stresses going on. So you want to check in with people and to the extent that they feel comfortable, talk about what's going on in their worlds. The second thing, and I think this is critical, you know, since we can't be together in person like we were before, is as much as you can do things by video. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, what might be brief phone calls now, I almost exclusively do those through a, a visual medium. Mm -hmm. because I want to see your facial expressions. I want to get a sense of your reaction. You know, there's those, those cues that I can get from seeing you and looking at you that I can't necessarily get on the phone. And I think now more than ever, it's important we have that. So I, I have very, very few pure phone calls now. Almost everything is done by video. Interesting. So coming back to the book's title, Ruthless Consistency, the implication is that inconsistency is not welcome, but from inconsistency can spark creativity and innovation. So how help me connect those dots, consistency, but creativity and innovation? Yes, and this is a great question, because by consistency, I don't mean 
mindless, you know, mindless activity, robotic repetition, where, you know, leave your brain at home, just bring your body to work. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. It's a ruthless consistency of purpose. Again, so that all of our decisions and all of our actions are aligned with our intentions. Now, in a volatile, changing environment, we need to take different approaches. What worked yesterday may not work today, right? What works with one client may not work with another client. So the point is, whatever we need to do, as creative and as innovative as that might be, has to be consistently aligned with our intentions. So not only does consistency not you know, uh, preclude creativity and innovation, it demands it. Because typically you can't achieve your goals, your intentions, by robotically doing the same things the same way without question all of the time. It's that ruthless consistency of purpose. So if I'm a leader, I'm listening to this conversation, we've touched on a number of different topics and lenses to look at our strategic execution. Where do I start? <laughs> Where do you start? By taking a look in the mirror. <laughs> and asking myself, if I'm a leader, I want to ask myself, how committed am I to achieving what I need to achieve? How committed am I? And really doing an honest assessment. Have I been as committed as I need to, right? Or have I talked commitment, but really my actions haven't backed that up? And then are you willing to be committed? And if you are, then you may need to change some of your patterns. And also be very honest. If you're not as committed you know, as you need to be, then maybe you need to either modify your goals or in the case of a CEO, maybe you need a COO or somebody who is the driver who's going to make it happen. So the key is being very honest in that self-assessment. How committed am I to success? How committed do I need to be success? And then based on your answer, taking the right steps. I love this. All right, Michael, as we come to the end of our time today, what final thoughts do you have for the listeners and watchers uh, of the People First podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think we've already talked about just the importance of consistency, the importance of commitment. So maybe one thing I would leave people with is this. It's easy to focus on, well, here are all the challenges we have to deal with. Here are the obstacles. Here are the competitors, right? And, you know, we focus on that, like, you know, dealing with that is going to determine our success. So what I'd leave you with is this. What determines success, it, it ultimately doesn't come down to you versus the obstacles, you versus the competitors, or you versus the challenges. What it comes down to is you versus you. Mm. You versus you. It's you. Are you willing to do? Are you willing to do what needs to be done to be successful? And that's what determines things. Because what, if it does, you do have that commitment, you will find a way to deal with those things, to make the decisions. So don't use ex excuses or obstacles or challenges. All of us are faced with those things. In the end, it's you versus you. Powerful words. Thank you, Michael. So how can people learn more about you, your firm, and of course, the book? Thank you. Well, Making Strategy Happen. That's our company. That's our website. And if you go to makingstrategyhappen.com, you'll be able to uh, see the book as well and order the book. So, and that, by the way, on this web website, we have over 400 blogs. There are tools you can download, lots of resources, all sorts of free content, everything that has to do with making strategy happen. That's where you can find it, makingstrategyhappen.com.
Michael, thank you so much. I'll make sure all of that information is in the show notes. I appreciate our conversation today and I look forward to ongoing conversations through Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches and just ad hoc over coffee in due course. Fantastic. Hey, great to speak with you. Thanks so much, Morag. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.